Welcome to State Road 49, an audio program that shares extraordinary stories from everyday people. My name is Aaron Freiberger. Before we get started, a quick note. We would like to thank everyone for the large amount of response and feedback we have received. When the project started, we decided not to have a set release schedule. Having said that, we are planning to release episodes monthly to bi-monthly. Thank you for your patience and we appreciate you coming back. Okay, well today's guest is a missionary who has served all over the world, but for now we'll be focusing on his time in the Middle East. To protect him and his family's identity, we'll be using the name Sam. Please enjoy his story. All these uh, experiences I had, being completely immersed in only one thing that I knew, and then all of a sudden being shocked out of that. Uh, I think people react different ways. Some some just uh, pull in and protect themselves, and I kind of reacted the other way. I was just really intrigued and curious, and so I just wanted to know more, and I wanted to understand more. My wife and I had been uh, researching places to go. My wife's a nurse, I'm a teacher, so we, we, we wanted to go to a place where we could serve and help with those gifts, which is really anywhere in the world. And so we started uh, researching some organizations that send people over. And uh, we had recently traveled to India and Eastern Europe and South America and a few other places, um, just sort of scouting out what we wanted or what, where God was kind of leading our interests. And we weren't real clear at that point, but just sitting down with, with uh, one organization that really uh, we connected to, they gave us a couple options. Um, kind of in the Southeast Asia and Middle East. Um, and they said, hey, you should go. And so six months later, we went and uh, visited a little country in the Middle East. We're just intrigued by the culture. You know, a lot of the stereotypes of Middle Easterners is, you know, terrorists, uh, ignorant, just a lot, a lot of things that scare, I think, Westerners. And my first experience was, wow, everybody is super friendly. You walk down the street, and every people are like, you know, one word in English, and it's welcome. And they just, welcome! They just yell at you, and it's a little freaky sometimes. Um, <laughs> and we knew no Arabic, only English. And uh, we sat in some people's homes. We had some friends that already lived there. Uh, and the hospitality, I was really humbled, actually, because, you know, I was thinking, what can I come and give to these people? I'm a teacher. I've got a lot of knowledge and information. My wife is a nurse. She can cure people. Um, and I realized after a week there... I felt like I knew nothing. And it was just really intriguing to me, too, the difference, the different ways that they understood God and the different ways they understood culture and family and community and some of these deeper things that I, I think in my, my monocultural Midwestern upbringing we don't really think as much about, like... Community, we, yeah, community is important here, but you don't, everybody sort of still takes care of their own. It's it, in, in our American culture, you know, if somebody's, if you don't have much money, somebody might help you out, but you kind of need to figure it out on your own. Go figure out a better job. Go, you know, go study. In this Eastern culture, they all own that together almost. It's like a journey for all of them together. I've been to some of the poorest countries in the Middle East, like, like top 10 poorest, top 20, top 30 poorest in the world. And there aren't orphanages. There are no orphanages, um, which is weird um, because if, if uh, parents die, it's just assumed that the nearest relative will take those kids on and, be, and they'll be their kids. 
And it sounds really awesome, but, you know, it works itself out in a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's great. Sometimes they're like second class kids. And, you know, there's a lot of realities to that. But this built in idea that we take care of no questions asked, you know, nobody complains about it. Uh, nobody files a court junction, you know, to get another someone else to take them. There might be seven kids. They just take them and uh, they and they survive. There's very little starvation. Um, I've seen a lot of uh, some places where there's not enough food um, for the whole country. And so small little stores will give credit, like a lot of credit to poor people that need it because they know them or because of it down the street. They just don't say no. Um, and so people are not starving. I mean, people are in debt forever, but they kind of make it work um, and take care of each other. Those little aspects I started picking up on and it really humbled me. Um, and it really started this journey of like less so much what do I have to give and how can I save these people or help these people? And almost more like God had so much more to change in me and to shape me than I had to give. And, I th and that's, that's kind of a, a picture, I think, of this, this journey that started about then. A couple things that really messed with my head is uh, one of my best friends uh, when I lived in the Middle East had a picture of Saddam Hussein on, on his phone background. Um, and, you know, to us, that's like, oh, this guy must be a terrorist. He likes Saddam Hussein, you know. But he had a completely other reason for respecting him. They saw Saddam as a guy who stood up to the West regardless. They know he was bad and did horrible things. But the honorable thing was that he had stood up to the, to the, to the West, to the, to the giant, to the, um, the person that had... had uh, uh, challenged him. And so um, I could, I had a lot of friends who really disrespected and did not like American policies. And they would ask me, which just like, why do your country intervene so much? Why do they occupy? Why do they do these things? Um, and it had nothing to do with me. Like, I feel like as Americans, we have a hard time separating terrorism from individual Muslims. And we see the whole thing as one big thing. And my friends there seem to seem to have it figured out somehow in that uh, the government does things, but you're like my Amer you're like my neighbor, and you're sitting in my house drinking tea with me, and so you are not this giant thing that you know that that I'm afraid of. Like you're my friend slash family now. There's this idea in uh, Eastern culture where it's called three cups of tea, where the first cup of tea you share with someone, you're kind of a stranger because you've just met. Um, and, and if you go and share a second cup of tea with them, you can become the friend, and then by this third meeting, you're you're considered almost family. Um, and we and we experienced that a lot. Um, our first place we lived in the Middle East, uh, we moved into an apartment, and there was a uh, kind of an old grandpa, I don't know, 70s or 80s, that lived in the main house, and he had built an apartment building uh, on his property, and it was going to be like six stories, two apartments on each floor, and his idea was to move all his sons and their families into those apartments, um, and then a couple would be for for uh, getting extra rent money, so for for other people. And at the time, he had four apartments finished, and three of those were his, his sons with their families, and we moved into the fourth one. And after about a month, only speaking English at this point, uh, I would sit and hang out with the brothers, and uh, we'd watch TV and try to communicate, and I was learning Arabic slowly. Uh, but after about a month, they were making a joke about how um, when you name your kids in, in uh, Arab culture, you give them a new first name, but then their second name is always the father's name third name is the grandfather's name, and then you end with sort of what village you're from. 
Um, and they kind of bestowed on me this honor. They, they, they gave me an Arab name, and then my second name was the grandfather's name. And so we were kind of, you know, uh, assimilated into this family. A couple months later, a Westerner was killed uh, by some terrorist group near, really close to our house, actually. And they knew we were pretty upset by that, and um, we were kind of on security lockdown for a lot of reasons. Pretty much all foreigners were kind of put on house lockdown. Uh, they told us everyone might be being watched at that point, um, and we were going to be evacuated within a few days. Uh, we had about three days to move our whole life um, out of our house. The family that we were kind of a part of knew how we were reacting. We were very stressed about that. We had two young daughters with us at the time. And, uh, and so as we were getting ready to leave, um, we were kind of, the taxi kind of showed up. We had a military escort to the airport, um, and we were, like, packing our things. And, and meanwhile, one of the brothers of uh, the family who had been out of, the, out of town for a while was just coming back into town when he saw me. And uh, one quick aside about Arab culture, especially this part of the world, there's a lot of guns. Everybody's got AK-47s to spare. Um, and so when this brother saw we were leaving, he said, Sam, why are you leaving? Like, uh, you don't have to leave. We have so many guns. I will give you, like, all our guns, and you don't have to go. You will be fine. Actually, before that, they had told us, too, uh, if anybody uh, comes for you, you know, if these people come to get you, we're going to go first with our guns and kill them before they can find you. This is three months after meeting this family and being a part of them. At the moment, I was kind of shocked and, like, appalled. Like, no, I don't want guns. Like, this is what's caused this problem is guns, you know. Uh, but that was their reaction and their way to show love and community and protection. What was the lesson, maybe, that you learned or part of your life that has changed the way you look at life differently? You know, as I was growing up, especially in, in our churches, you know, we're just taught that, that we have this one answer and everybody needs it. And, and then as I got an education and as a teacher, I'm taught you have the information and knowledge everyone needs. Like, and so it's almost a superiority that gets built. It's some sort of inferiority we're taught to see in others that we have something that others need. And so I kind of entered with that context, probably a bit of a messiah complex, you know, of I can save the world, I can do it. You know, I'm the one that can do it and I'm here. Um, and, and actually... This first few years in the Middle East really kind of flipped that upside down, and I learned that I had so much still to grow and to gain, and probably I think God had more to change in me than I had to give this new faith or this or these uh, education or things that I wanted to offer, um, realizing that I'm nothing, you know, in the grand scheme of things without God and His grace um, and without community and without family and kind of these things that that I found in this other culture, um, these things that I never really had before, this sense of community and family. Since you're a teacher, what is something you can tell all of us, new perspective maybe we can have? Everybody in the world is a child of God. How can we better ourselves? Um, I think one journey the church hasn't done well is is kind of what we're doing here, sharing stories. Um, I think stories are so powerful. Something we see Jesus do over and over again that we don't emulate well is is telling a story and also asking good questions and being okay with just questions. Jesus answered most of the questions he was asked with another question. Like just getting these good answers is kind of what we want to satisfy things, but I think it it, it leaves out the Holy Spirit and God to work in us because it's like, oh, we got the answer and we want to move on. 
But what I learned being in the Middle East is there are no good answers. Like, you know, Palestine and Israel, what's, we want an answer as Westerners. There's, you know, it's either this or this, a one state or two state solution. Let's get it over with, you know, and, and interacting with, with this culture, you realize that, you know what, there's, there's kind of bigger questions and deeper things. And, and instead of looking for quick answers, um, I think we need to ask better questions. I think our questions are bad. They're very right or wrong, yes or no. I think it involves God a lot more too in the process. Because um, he's not, I don't think he's a God that just gives us straight answers all the time, but he wants us to be in a journey and a relationship with him. There's this phrase, imago Dei, which is, uh, it means image of God. And that if we believe Genesis that says we're all created in God's image um, and that we carry his image, um, I think that should change how we treat each other and how we see each other. Um, and I think when we see God in people, that helps us like see the human in them also and restore some of that humanity. Um, just as we see even religious differences. I mean, I've seen, I've seen the image of God in the eyes of a Muslim man, you know, and like, what does that mean coming back home to my conservative Midwestern church and to tell people that I've seen the image of God in a Muslim, you know, in, in, a, in the eyes of a man who completely denies who Jesus is and all these things. Um, and that, what all that does is raise about 50 more questions and a lot of ambiguity. And I cry and people think I'm like, fell away from the faith and don't believe in God, you know, and it, it just, it creates a lot of like weirdness. At what point did you realize that you saw God in this man's eyes? I mean, I've seen it a few times, but probably the most recent is uh, just in the eyes of a refugee who was completely hopeless, um, had his son, four and a half year old son with him. Um, and I'd gotten to know him a little bit and uh, just hearing his story and seeing the desperation in his eyes. Um, there was something of God in that, I think, when, when, when someone is suffering um, so much, lo- losing their home, losing family, losing everything they have. Um, he was nearly killed when a building fell on him. Just all these things going through um, his heart and his experiences. Um, and he was to the point where he knew um, there was nothing that could really help him anymore. There was no person that could help him. There was no organization. Nobody had money for him. I think at the moment he was like trying to find a fan for his house. It's like 100 degrees in his house and 20 kids, and there's no fan for them to sleep at night. And and it had gotten to that point where he didn't care about food. He wanted a fan, you know. Like there's this humanity going along with the thing as well. And uh, um, and we left that day. Um, and just seeing his eyes, uh, he wanted an he kind of wanted an answer. Like, but but he knew there was no answer. I just love that interaction with um, God being in those questions, though. You know, just like we, I think we, I think we're getting better too at, at understanding that God's not the one who destroys the evil person and all the evil happening all the time, but He's the one that's present with those who are suffering in that evil. You know, and and so we want to know, like, why doesn't God get rid of evil? But we forget that He's there with the suffering, and He is, a, He's a suffering Savior. And he's, uh, and, he, and he's present in that. And that's not a good answer. You know, we're not satisfied with that because, you know, there's still people being killed and there's children dying of starvation and all those things. Um, and saying, well, God is there and understands isn't, doesn't always feel good. I heard a good, a good quote the other day of, you know, as, as Christians, we like to say, Jesus is the answer to all your questions, which what does that even mean? Who knows? But I think, I think, it, I think it's fun to flip that and say, like, Maybe Jesus is the question to our answers. You know, maybe we need to find him in these questions better, ask these better questions, and trust that the answers uh, will come as we live out life with him.
question keeps coming up to me. In what way, through maybe your experience, do you see the personality of God? I would say um, that we, we, we try to really narrow down, and, and, uh, and I've done it in a lot of sermons too, where we, we try to um, define who God is by his characteristics and who he is and what he is. And it's, it's, I think it's a constant search to pin him down and to get him to fit into a nice little box so that we can kind of control him, you know. Not a lot has changed in 10,000 years of human history and how we see God, you know, as this, as this thing that will give us rain if we do the right things and will withhold rain if we don't. And, um, not a lot has changed in that way, but, but, to, but breaking out of that box means asking questions that don't have quick answers and that, that require a lot of talking and that really it requires community and relationship with people to, to walk through those answers together. I'm kind of learning as well this idea that I can't save the world, um, and even 10 people I take can't save the world. But God, God's plan, I think, is not just one of us to do something or to change something, but how can we involve other people in that? How can we raise other people up uh, to take my place? Maybe I can't go, but maybe I can find 20 more people and teach them and train them um, to do this. And now there's 20 of them instead of one of me. And it's just it just broadens, I think, the scope of, of how God um, disciples us, how he teaches us, how we grow uh, this kingdom. Part of my journey is is thinking that my life and my story will help people, and that's why I want to do it because it's part of the superior thing and that I have so much to give. And so I've I've kind of had to reframe that thinking of how how do I help people? Is it do I find somebody who literally doesn't have food and I can give them food, or is it, or I can teach them something because I'm a teacher, you know, and now they know it, you know, or and I I think I think what God's journeyed me on a bit is to help people is to help them hear God um, and to help them with their similar journeys. Um, and that's, that's vague as well, but I, I think uh, when you can help people um, hear God and, and, and figure out where they're headed at in their journeys and, and know and get better questions to ask God and better questions to ask each, each other, um, I think that's why we're here, to help each other with, with those kind of things. If you had to ask one question to the church, Western Church, United States, uh, what would that question be? I think uh, I think a good quote, or something that's been messing with my mind lately, is um, that I heard is uh, it probably addresses the church and America, but um, this idea that um, we aspire to things that our systems don't really allow for. Um, so, if, for example, our churches, we say we want to reach the world. Uh, we want to um, do all these things um, to the world and to disciple people, yet 97% of like churches' budgets are like pastors and buildings. Um, and it's like there's so much else going around the world. There's so many people with needs. There's so much other stuff. Um, and we spend pretty much everything on ourselves. Um, and so, you know, when we say these, these grand things about what we want to do and who we want to support and we want to reach the world for Jesus and all these things— um, you know, our systems don't really allow for that because you follow the money, follow the time, follow the focus, and it's pretty much on ourselves. So recently when I was in the Middle East, I was uh, talking with a friend, and he, I was kind of explaining to him how um, the church does things in America, and he's a, he's a Christian from uh, the Middle East, and um, he, he works a lot with poor and, other, and, and just kind of some oppressed folks and refugees, and I was explaining to him how the American church um, we're kind of getting known for who we're against and how to protect ourselves, and, and uh, it's, a lot of it's fear-based, you know. Um, and he really stunned me by saying, wow, it sounds like there's two different Jesuses. And 
like I, I was like speechless for a minute. Um, but I think he really nailed it when he said that, because um, the Jesus he knows is not one that protects um, and worries about what he can get and worries about hoarding resources and, and worries about maybe, you know, will there be enough for everybody? Um, but the Jesus he follows is one that gives even when he doesn't have enough, um, who loves even when um, it's someone who's unlovable or he, he uh, you know, obviously gave everything and sacrificed everything and, and, he, and he knows suffering. Um, and so I think that would be the question maybe for the American church and for the church universal is which Jesus are we going to follow? Once again, that was Sam, who we would like to thank for sharing his story. We would also like to thank you for listening. Please subscribe to the program to hear more. I'm Aaron Freiberger, and this is State Road 49. Produced by Aaron Freienberger, Matt Willingham, and Garrett Schultz. It is executive produced by the Heartland Christian Center. Visit their website at hcc3d.com. That is hcc, the number 3d.com. This episode was recorded, edited, and mixed by Garrett Schultz. Music by Thomas Kilobos. For more information about the program, visit us at facebook.com/slash state road 49. This program was produced in Valparaiso, Indiana. <laughs>